I proclaim to you the word of God as we have that in 1 Kings 1. We'll kind of center that around two verses in this chapter. uh, Verses 5 and 39. 1 Kings 1 verse 5. And we read there. Then Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself saying I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And then verse 39 Then Zadok the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last month we celebrated the birth of Christ, the Christ child, and the name Christ, we confess that in Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Christ means anointed one. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one and the Hebrew word is Messiah. The Old Testament kings of Israel were called Messiahs, anointed ones. When David was being pursued by King Saul, he refused to harm Saul when he had opportunity to do so. He wouldn't lay a hand, he said, on the Lord's anointed. And when when you read that in the original language, and it says he would not lay hand on the, the Lord's Messiah. Later, David was also himself the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. And our text for this morning is about how Solomon was anointed, how Solomon became a Messiah, the Lord's Messiah in Israel. And from Solomon on, the eldest son of each king in the lineage of David became the Lord's Messiah. The Lord had promised that to David. We sang about that in Psalm 89. So in all those those messiahs in Israel were in their work to anticipate the great Messiah, Jesus Christ. However, the book of Kings shows that the earthly anointed ones, messiahs in the lineage of David, were not able to prefigure the great Messiah who would bring the ultimate deliverance of his people from their sins and misery. Those Old Testament kings, messiahs, couldn't give the people victory over their, their sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and their own sinful nature, and ultimately not over death. And they were not good at prefiguring that, that messiah, the ultimate messiah either. However, their reign does does cry out for the coming of the messianic king of David's line who has to come from above. It's a call. The book of Kings is a call for the coming of Christ, the Messiah. And we still anticipate the coming of Christ today. So it's good for us to deal with the book of Kings, in order to keep alive in us too that, that 
desire for, that longing for the return of the Messiah, King Jesus. And I preached to you the text for this morning with this theme, then the Lord establishes the throne of his chosen king, his Messiah. We see two things. Adonijah arrogantly tries to take that throne. And secondly, Solomon humbly receives that throne. Congregation 1 Kings 1 actually begins with a pretty remarkable story, doesn't it? King David had become old and apparently basically bedridden. He couldn't stay warm. So they held a kind of Miss Israel contest. And the loveliest young lady was chosen, Abishag. And she had to take care of the king and lay with him in his bed to keep him warm. What, what are we to think of that, you wonder? Well, we have to be careful that we don't simply read what took place around the year 1000 before Christ because that's when David lived. We shouldn't think that, we shouldn't read that with 21st century eyes. This wasn't, this wasn't necessarily at all, this wasn't a, a, a sexual thing, but this was something to take care of a beloved and aged king in the final and the waning days of his life. Don't forget, they didn't have electric blankets to keep the old king warm in bed during the winter and it wouldn't be proper to put a man in bed with the king and women who were older and probably his wife Bathsheba too they probably had issues with cold feet themselves circulation so a young woman was most likely the best option to care for the king and keep him warm as he approached the end of his days So rather than get stuck at the matter of whether it was right or not to have that young woman stay with the bed and lay with the king, we have to concentrate on the matter of succession to the throne of Israel. That's a big issue in 1 Kings 1. It's introduced with that matter of Abishag to show how frail the king was at that time. But the thing was that that God had promised David that his throne would endure. And that in the future, one of his sons would be king forever even. An eternal king was going to come out of his lineage. And through the prophet Nathan, the Lord God had made known to David that Solomon would be king after him. Now, humanly speaking, Solomon ought not to have been the first in line for the throne. When the Lord pointed to Solomon as David's heir... He passed over a a number of older sons of David who we'd say would have had more right to the throne. But that's the Lord's MO, modus operandi, method of operating. He doesn't necessarily work according to human ways of, of doing things and human expectations. The Lord come, works, often works against the, that. And, and he worked like that more often in the past with the same M.O. Think of Isaac's son, Jacob and Esau. 
Not Esau, but Jacob inherited the covenant blessings. Not the eldest son, but the younger was the heir. Same with the sons of Jesse. Not the older sons were anointed king, but David, the younger one. Why does the Lord act that way? Well, he wants to stop anyone from thinking that his redemptive work for his people is in any way dependent on human right or strength or ability. No, salvation is completely and totally God's own work in God's own way. And that's why he acts as he does. Also when it comes to the heir to Israel's throne at that time, to the following Messiah, anointed one. God wants to show that the ultimate Messiah comes in his way, his time, from him. Well, that the Lord God acts in that way, unexpected way, often causes resentment and opposition from people who don't accept God's choosing, God's way of of working, his M.O. You see that, for instance, with Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, who were always upset about God's choosing Jacob and his descendants, the Israelites above Esau and the Edomites. Well, you see the same kind of opposition to the Lord God's choice in 1 Kings 1. The Lord had appointed Solomon as the next king of Israel. He had made that known already through the prophet Nathan. Solomon's older brother Amnon was already dead, killed by Absalom for raping his sister Tamar. And Absalom had tried to stage a coup and take the throne, but he was killed by Joab while he hung by his long hair in a tree. There was still one son of David who was older than Solomon, and that was Adonijah. And he figures in 1 Kings 1, I should have the throne. I should be king. And that brings the main issue in this chapter to the fore. Who decides who is going to be king over Israel? Who decides who's going to be the Messiah of Israel, the anointed one of God? The Lord God or man who acts in arrogant self-interest. Adonijah knew David was old and approaching the end of his life, and of course he knew about Solomon's appointment as the next heir to the throne. He didn't accept that. And that's why we read in our text, verse 5, that Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And the emphasis is on the I exalted himself, arrogantly refused to accept the Lord's decision. He didn't accept the place God had assigned him, resented the place that God had assigned Solomon. He knew, he figured he knew better than God. And so he lost sight of God's wisdom and grace. That always happens when you think you know better than God. What should be happening? You lose sight of his grace. And when you lose sight of that, and you continue in that, your demise will certainly follow, as we see with Adonijah. 
For God had a plan for Israel. The people of Israel, and specifically the king of Israel, were going to show the world how God establishes his kingdom on earth. Israel as a nation existed, was, was existed by God's choosing and work. God had a plan for this people and, and for its king. There were, they were to prefigure the eternal king and the everlasting kingdom and church, which were to be built up in the future through the, through the everlasting Messiah. But Adonijah didn't care about the almighty and holy God's plan. He just cared about his own plans and his own position. That was more important to him than what the Lord had decided. And he wanted to be king no matter what. Wanted to seize the throne for himself before Solomon could get up on it. After all, he was the oldest living prince. Also good looking, smart communicator. Figured he could drum up the support he needed to be able to seize the throne for himself. David was old and weak. Now was the time. So he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and he hired 50 men to run before him wherever he went, as it says in our text. Notice how Adonijah went about it then. Shows the kind of king he wanted to be. The kind of anointed one, Messiah, he wanted to be. Chariots and horses in those days represented the kind of military power the other nations of, around Israel also relied on. Chariots and horsemen, the tanks and, and other equipment that we think about today as representing military strength. Adonijah got a bunch of them and he showed in that he wanted to be a king who relied on military power and strength. That was his, his aim. Not to prefigure and, and to watch over God's people and prefigure the, the coming Messiah. No, he wanted to be king with power. And you know how the Lord God had actually forbidden Israelite kings to acquire chariots and horsemen because their strength lay in their dependence on God's power. David never rode in a chariot like that. Never had any chariots at all in his army or horses. Those men running before Adonijah was an arrogant show of importance too. He rode around in this chariot with, a, with 50 men running before him. A show of strength and prominence. When David rode among the people, he did so on the back of a humble mule. And remember how when the, when the ark came up to, to the tabernacle on Zion, how David had danced before the ark in, a, in humble dress, like common man. No show of strength, but humility. And that showed that the main mark of David's kingship wasn't military strength, brutality, force, 
No, it was humility in the Lord God. He depended on the Lord. And that was what was supposed to mark the kingship in Israel, wasn't it? Israel's king was to humbly rely on and walk with the Lord. Acknowledging that the Lord was ultimately king of all. Humility was to be the main characteristic of the king of Israel. Humility under God. And in that the kingship of Israel was to be distinguished from that of all the other nations. The king humbly rode on a mule because actually the Lord God was Israel's king. But Adonijah wasn't interested in being a king like that. He was after power and glory for himself. Wanted to be like the other kings of the nations. Wanted to compete with them on their terms. Relying on military prowess instead of on the Lord God. He did not acknowledge the Lord God as king overall. Well, it's in those terms then that Adonijah also sought to seize the throne of Israel in the first place. That's what you do if you don't want to live out of God's grace and strength. You become arrogant and you grab for honor and might and your own strength and you try to figure out things your way by scheming. You try to organize it all so you get things your way. And so Adonijah staged his coup. How different from his father David Adonijah was. You remember Saul was king over Israel. Not a good king, but he was king. And David, he pursued David when he heard that David was to be the next king. He pursued him. And David had ample opportunity to kill Saul and take the throne for himself. Don't forget, David had already been anointed by Samuel, the prophet, long before. So he knew he was going to be king. He had opportunity to seize the kingship for himself, but he didn't do so. He waited humbly for the Lord's time. He humbly wanted to receive the throne from the Lord God himself. And he acknowledged then too, God is king. And in that, David actually foreshadowed the great king, Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, he didn't want to seize the throne of God's eternal kingdom by means of his own power or ingenuity. He showed that in that temptation in the wilderness when the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he said to Jesus, you can receive power over all these kingdoms if you just bow the knee to me. The Lord Jesus didn't want to short-circuit the way God had laid laid out for him to obtain the kingdom, to receive all power and authority in heaven and earth. Didn't want to short-circuit that way. And he knew, too, that way was a, suff- a way of suffering and dying and a cursed death for the sins of the people. 
And yet he was willing, humbly, to take that way. David prefigured that. But Adonijah, in his selfish arrogance, didn't understand anything about that kind of humble receiving the throne from God. No, he plotted to seize the kingship in an underhanded manner. Made himself, first of all, look powerful and authoritative, prominent. And then he talked some of the more powerful people like Joab, the commander of the army, and Abiathar, the priest, into supporting him. They, had, they were big people in, in Israel, and if he could get their support, then that would be a good thing. And he had them and others along with the other sons of David come to a big feast. He did not invite Solomon, but all the other ones. And the feast was accompanied by sacrifices, for with sacrifices you can give the impression at least that the Lord God is on your side. Use the name of the Lord to gain your own ends. That happens today too, right? Connect your own aspirations with God and calling on Him to achieve your aims, a movement that uses God's name for its own ends. People who make decisions to do things and say, well, I prayed about it, as if God would justify whatever they did. But calling on God is no guarantee that God approves of what you do. When Adonijah arrogantly refused to depend on the Lord's mercy and his aspirations, then the, the Lord decided that he would teach him to beg for mercy in the end. And he has to beg for mercy in the end, doesn't he? Clinging to the horns of the altar. Completely humiliated. That's the way it goes when you don't depend on the Lord in your heart. Even if you piously pray to the Lord. So pride here came before the fall. We come to the second part of the sermon. Solomon humbly receives the throne. We mentioned before congregation that King David was old and weak and most likely bedridden at the time. He wasn't fully aware what Adonijah was up to. He, he knew his aspirations. But Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba went to David to remind him of his oath to Bathsheba. And it was Nathan who had communicated to David the will of the Lord, namely that Solomon was to be king. David was weak at the time, but when confronted with the real picture of what was going on, he comes into action. Notice, by the way, that Solomon doesn't go to David or approach Bathsheba about Adonijah's actions. Solomon doesn't do anything. He doesn't play any role in this here. Even though he knew what was going on and he knew that he had the promise that he was going to be the next king, he didn't do anything. Solomon didn't run to David in a panic in order to secure the kingship for himself. He didn't say to David, look, I thought I was going to be king. We hear nothing from, David, from Solomon. He didn't drum up support for himself over against Adonijah and his supporters. Solomon doesn't take matters in his own hands. But he trusts the Lord has made that promise. I have to leave that with the Lord. 
No matter how tough that is. I have to leave it in the hands of the Lord who promised before that I would be king. And he has to leave it in the hands of King David who still alone actually had the authority to bestow the kingship to somebody else. Well, once David heard from Bathsheba and Nathan what was going on, got the clear picture when he was reminded of his oath and the Lord's directives concerning the throne, David made the necessary decisions and he was resolute then. He was old, weak, but he didn't simply roll over in bed and say, well, let somebody else worry about it. No, he knew his responsibility here. Once more, he acts as king of Israel the way the king was supposed to act. He shows once more why he was king after God's heart and he acts here in submission to God according to his responsibilities. He knows now that the progress of God's kingdom is at stake and and that it is expected of him to act. He realized his responsibilities. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is my task. Even in his old age, he realized this is my task as king, as anointed one here. He realized and accepted he was supposed to be the instrument in carrying out God's will for the throne, even though it was distasteful for him to get involved in that. And so with all the strength he had in him yet, he acts to ensure that the will of God is going to take place. First of all, he renewed his oath. He renews his oath to Bathsheba that Solomon will be crowned king. And he promises to ensure that that's going to happen that same day. And then he summons Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada the commander. And he instructs them, you have to take action, men, in this situation. And some of them, some of the things he told them to do are of note. First of all, as our text says, Solomon was anointed by Zadok the priest. You have to think about that because actually David said that Nathan the prophet and Zadok the priest were to anoint Solomon. But in verse 39 of our text, we're told only about Zadok taking the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointing Solomon. If you recall how King David was anointed, you remember that he was anointed with holy oil by the prophet Samuel. And Saul was also anointed by Samuel. Both Saul and and David were chosen out of the people to be king. God made a new beginning with Saul. Now Israel was going to have a king. Later he made a new beginning again with David. Because of Saul's unbelief, the kingship was given to another, to David. So when God wanted to make a new beginning, chose a new royal house, he had a prophet do the anointing. A prophet alone. But he had promised that David's lineage would now continue on the throne in Jerusalem. There would be a son of his on the throne all the time. There would be no more new beginning. Hence, from Solomon on, the kings were anointed by the priests. 
And there's a parallel with those offices then too. Prophets were specially chosen by, by God and appointed by God. A prophet did never inherited his office from his father. However, with the priest, that was different. The priesthood was passed from father to son. And since the kingship would now also be passed from father to son, all the way to the Messiah, the great Messiah, son of David, it was the priests who did the anointing of kings. And the anointing by the priest then represented continuity. So from Solomon on, priesthood and kingship were still separate offices, but they were closely connected. The peace with God brought about by the priests and the temple service was now connected with the peace that the kings were supposed to bring for the kingdom. Only in Jesus Christ would those offices be fully united in one person, the priest king, Jesus Christ. He is the prince of peace who would establish the kingdom of peace. Solomon in his anointing by Zadok the priest was in a, an anticipation of the prince of peace. His calling in office was to maintain the peace of the kingdom of Israel. And that's in fact what his name meant. Solomon. Shalom. That means peace. King of peace. And that's also the symbolism of how Solomon rode through Jerusalem. He rode on the back of a mule, humbly. Not a war horse, not in a war chariot like the kings of other nations. No, humbly on a mule, the foal of a donkey. A king who comes in peace, who works for peace, in other words. That's how Solomon rides through the streets of the city after his anointing as king to the cheers of the people. Blessed are the people whose king comes humbly, riding on a mule, the foal of a donkey. And congregation, in that humility and that manner of that, that anointing and taking of office, we can't help also then but to think of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, can we? the last king in David's line. He would also ride on the foal of a donkey through the streets of Jerusalem, cheered on by the people, humble, ready to work peace for his people by his death on the cross. And the people of Israel were blessed by Solomon's kingship of peace. But the peace Solomon could bring was only an outward peace. The Lord Jesus Christ is much greater than Solomon. Greater than Solomon is here. How much more blessed we are today to belong to the eternal Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ. To his kingdom. Because he is the one who brings about perfect peace. The peace that passes understanding. The everlasting peace. And what a blessing it is to know that peace. To belong to that kingdom of peace. In the middle of this world, so full of turmoil today, so full of people arrogantly wanting to take power today. We saw that again last week, with terrorism. We're much more blessed with the Prince of Peace on a mule 
than any people of any nation whose leaders seek to exert their power with guns and bombs. For this Christ, this anointed king, overcame sin and Satan and death. And in him, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. So, so congregation, we learn from this small part of the history of the Old Testament that our king has come, yes, but that we, look, we need to look forward to the return of our king, Jesus Christ, in glory. In a world which, as we saw again over the week that's gone by, in a world that cannot find peace, cannot work it even by power, strength, guns. There is a body of people who continues to pray and to work and live for the coming of the true Prince of Peace, who is Jesus Christ. Humbly live for him. Lord, come quickly. Amen.